You're listening to episode one of Who Made My Clothes? An official fashion revolution podcast with me, Tamsin Blanchard. The sound you can hear there is me trying to find out where my clothes were made. And it's made in India. The point is, today, most of our clothes are made in faraway places. We don't know who made them or what their lives are like. And worst of all, we don't seem to care. But in this series, we're going to change that. Everybody wears clothes, so everybody is in effect a consumer of the fashion industry. I go shopping for clothes. You know, I can now picture faces of women that I know have made clothes for that brand. Very much it's been about understanding the life and the struggle often of the people that work along the whole of the fashion supply chain and finding a way to present those lives to the citizens and consumers in such a way so as to create empathy without pity. And this is not a cry for help, but a call for justice. In this three-part series, we'll hear about the difficult working and living conditions of garment workers across the world and explore the ways we can work together to change things for the better. In this first episode, we'll introduce an ambitious research project that collects stories and data from garment workers around the world. Then we'll look at the importance of garment workers' collective voice in affecting change, the obstacles that make unionisation a challenge, and the progress being made in this area. But first, why is it important to know who made our clothes? It's important to know who made our clothes because not knowing can be dangerous. Not knowing whose hands have toiled to clothe us means that we can't really know what conditions they face when sewing the garments we buy. That's Sarah Ditty from the coordination team at Fashion Revolution, a global movement campaigning for a cleaner, safer, fairer and more transparent fashion industry. Because of a lack of transparency from the brands that we buy, we don't know if the people who make our clothes are protected from unsafe and polluting conditions. We don't know if they're paid enough to support their families, if they have enough freedom to speak out without fear of losing their jobs, or worse, threatened with violence. We don't know if their basic, inalienable human rights are respected. In Asia alone, the industry employs more than 15 million people, and 80% of these workers are women. They're predominantly young and often from poor rural backgrounds. Experts estimate that over half of the world's garment workers aren't paid the legal minimum wage. And in many Asian nations where a vast amount of today's clothing is made, minimum wages for garment workers are less than half of a living wage, meaning workers are unable to afford life's basic necessities nor support their families. That's a story I believe people don't want to wear. As consumers, we deserve to know what we're buying into. That is why we have partnered with microfinance opportunities on the Garment Worker Diaries. Mm. 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 Mm.
My name is Guy Stewart. I'm the Executive Director of Microfinance Opportunities, which is a non-profit organization based in the United States. My name is Eric Nagel, and I'm the Research Director at Microfinance Opportunities. So the Garment Worker Diaries, it's focused on the economic lives of women who make our clothes. We chose Bangladesh, Cambodia and India because these are countries where a large share of the garments that people wear across the world are produced. With 540 garment workers spread over these three different countries, the Garment Worker Diaries is a huge project. And so Guy and Eric are working with local researchers to undertake this ambitious task. Each garment worker who signed up to the project is visited by a researcher every week to talk about what they earned, what they spent, and whether they relied on savings, loans or cash transfers from friends and family to make ends meet. It highlights not just the impact of working in a factory, but also the impact of gender dynamics within the home and the community. We'll be delving deeper into this question in our next episode. But for now, let's think about the methods of the Garment Worker Diaries project. The weekly research visits are a great way to collect information on garment workers' financial situations. But to be successful, the researchers have to build a sense of trust and support between them and the garment workers. You know, imagine if you had this one person who came into your home um, specifically to ask questions about you every single week for an entire year. Um, they end up creating a, a bond. You know, the, the women are in, incredibly welcoming. I mean, I think they recognize that we're trying to collect information that will help them in the long run. I mean, we do have women who are members of unions. And so being able to, to walk in and say, we want to get a better understanding of your life so that we can go to the unions and go to these other stakeholders and give them a better picture of the issues that you're dealing with, um, that resonates with them. Uh, and so one of the responsibilities that Guy and I have uh, is to make sure that we push our data back to those stakeholders so that their participation is, is valuable and has the impact that they're hoping it will. We'll be talking about the impacts of the Garment Worker Diaries project in the next episode. And we'll ask how researchers, policymakers and consumers can work towards a safe and dignified future for garment workers. But before we explore the future, let's go back in time. The date is April 23rd, 2013. The location? An eight-storey commercial building in the Savar district of Dhaka in Bangladesh. In the building, there's a bank, several shops and private apartments, and five garment factories. When cracks begin to appear in the building, the bank is immediately closed... So are the shops, and the apartments are all evacuated. But the owners of the five garment factories? Well, they ignore the warnings. Garment workers are ordered to return to work the next day.
on the morning of April 24th, as workers arrive for their day's labour, the building collapses. One thousand one hundred and thirty eight people are killed. More than two and a half thousand were injured. The Rana Plaza collapse was the deadliest garment factory accident in history. Rana Plaza was a watershed moment. Then we realized just how incredibly serious the problems were, just how bad conditions um, could be. That's Dr. Mark Anna, the director of the Centre for Global Workers' Rights and an associate professor of labour and employment relations at Penn State University. He started his union work back in the 1980s in Boston, but soon went further afield to work with unions around the world. I was invited to go to El Salvador to work with unions in El Salvador. I just saw some of the most horrific... Uh, Human rights violations, labor rights violations. Uh, one of the unionists I became closest with, she was a garment worker. She made uh, jeans for for a company. She rose up in the union ranks and became a very, very outspoken union leader. Um, and we became very, very close. I worked directly with her. And she was, she was killed. She was killed while we were having lunch together in, in, in front of me. So when Mark talks about garment workers and unions... He's speaking from a place of all-too-personal experience. And he believes that if the garment workers at Rana Plaza had been able to form a union, a system for collective bargaining, Rana Plaza would not have happened. When the cracks appeared on the building, a unified voice could have spoken out and said, No, we refuse to go back in. It is our right to resist dangerous forms of work. So if unions can help protect workers from dangerous conditions, then why don't all garment workers get together to speak out for their rights? So the state fights back against any form of um, worker mobilizing and, and protest. And then, of course, employers are, are involved in these practices. And we see this to this day. Employers under certain contexts and certain ways Um, perhaps associating with local gangs to take care of their union problems. So women are scared to fight for their rights. They made my life miserable. That's Kalpona Akta, director of the Bangladesh Centre for Worker Solidarity, who spoke to us from her office in Dhaka. I have been fired and blacklisted throughout the industry within two hours. Kalpona was a child labourer in a garment factory in Bangladesh until she became involved with the union. I didn't get a job any other factory. Maybe would get a job and work there seven days, and then I would get fired because they considered that I was a troublemaker. I was organizing union. Not only was Kalpona cast out of the garment industry for her union work, to this day, she lives and works in danger. We face a lot of police uh, harassment, like the factory management has a lot of power. They can bring police any time or they can file case or they can just, you know, complain to the police and police will just arrest us and keep in the custody during those days. So the intimidation and retaliation was like a daily 
uh, basis thing. In 2010, when we were supporting workers uh, to raise the minimum wage, and I got arrested and was in prison for a month and interrogated badly. The bad one uh, was like interrogated 18 hours in a row. And these threats and intimidation reached their peak in 2012. One of my co-workers has been abducted. He has been killed because of his advocacy for workers. The extremity of this violence against those involved in unions goes some way to explaining why the workers of Rana Plaza did not stand up and refuse to enter the building, even when the cracks appeared. As far as um, workers being organised and being represented by trade unions, that's still a huge big challenge in some of these sourcing countries because there's often a, a very hostile environment. Um, so I think um, in, the, in the formal networks, it, it remains a challenge. That's Debbie Coulter from the Ethical Trading Initiative. You will hear it referred to as ETI. It's a prominent and influential alliance of companies, trade unions and NGOs that work in partnership to improve workers' rights around the globe. My background is um, from the garment sector. I'm originally a garment worker from many, many years ago in the UK. Um, And I then went on to be a trade union official with the then National Union of Tailors and Garment Workers. Um, and it might be quite surprising, but many of the challenges that I seen in the 70s and 80s are the same challenges I see today in places like India and Bangladesh and Cambodia and Turkey and Leicester. Debbie knows the garment industry inside out. Like Kalpona, she has personally endured the problems that plague the industry. So what does she see as the biggest issue facing garment workers today? The key issue for most garment workers is pay and remains pay. Um, Pay is still incredibly low. We're still a long way off achieving anything close to a living wage. Um, That's not to underestimate the, the significant employment opportunities that have been presented to women and many women I know have been lifted out of abject poverty, but still... Um, uniformly wages are low across the whole sector. So the garment industry has lots of positive potential. It offers jobs to women, which allows them to make a living and support themselves and their families financially. But in too many cases, wages are just not enough, as we'll explore in further detail in the next episode. And what about gender discrimination? How does that affect the lives of garment workers around the world? You know, women um, do a lot of household chores before they even leave to go to the factory. And then they work 8, 10, 12 hours in a very challenging environment and then go home and then have to um, commit to all the household tasks. So, um, you know, they're doubly burdened in that respect. Um, And they're undervalued in the workplace and they're underrepresented underrepresented in um, trade unions and they and but largely they're unrepresented by trade unions so there's a whole the cards are stacked against women um, workers and what about legal protection do garment workers have any rights enshrined in law most women in the garment sector now um, operate within um, countries that have very weak legislation, weak labour laws to protect them, um, and those labour laws are not enforced. 
Why are we still seeing this flagrant exploitation of garment workers' rights? The concept of ethical trade has been around for 20 years. So why haven't things been improving? My take on this is that the industry um, they have focused maybe too much on um, audit and compliance. Um, and although audit has got its place, we're not suggesting there shouldn't be audits of factories. Um, you know, it's, it's now a multi-million pound industry. Um, and we know of factories who, um, you know, are struggling hard to be compliant, but have, you know, 20, 30 audits a year. Um, and, and that doesn't allow them really to, to focus and concentrate on getting the job done of trying to make improvements to, to um, workers' conditions in the factory. And it's a flawed system. We know that now. And if we didn't know it before, we know it in the post-Rana Plaza environment. So I think sadly, um, you know, there has been good progress. A lot of companies now have positive ethical trade agendas um, and don't just rely on audit, although that's slowly changing. But the big game changer, of course, is was Rana Plaza. Um, and from that point on, I think... You know, the, the ethical trade world has changed um, and it, it sort of accelerated people's activity. They n- know that they're still vulnerable and at risk if they just rely on audit. And they know that um, it's not just about, in that case, it's not just about building and fire safety. It's about workers' voice. And if those workers in, in the Tazreen building or the Rana Plaza building had been empowered and did have a voice, they would have, A, left the building um, when they wanted to, or B, not gone into the building when they knew it was unsafe. Um, and, and I think people have woken up to that now. It's, not, it's no longer, you know, just a, a call from organisations like ETI or Industrial, you know, workers need to be better organised and represented. We need to do better to make sure that the workers inside these supplier factories feel protected, feel represented, and feel empowered to speak up. That's Mark Anna again. I I sort of sometimes go between what I call top-down approaches and bottom-up approaches, and they need to come together. We We need both. Like Debbie, Mark believes that legally enforced inspections are useful to some degree. But workers have to unionise and find their voice if we're to see real changes in the industry. But what Mark calls top-down change is also incredibly important. And after Rana Plaza, we started to see some big changes in international policies. Governments got involved in a very serious way. The EU starts getting involved. Probably most importantly, I would say, is that we, we get the accord. The Bangladesh Accord is one of the single most important initiatives that I've seen watching the industry for over over 20 years. So what is the Bangladesh Accord? The Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Building Safety is a legally binding agreement between industrial and uni global unions and more than 200 global brands and retailers. That's Jenny Holcroft, the Assistant Secretary General of Industrial a global union representing 50 million workers in 140 countries. Like Mark, Jenny believes that the Bangladesh Accord is a landmark of progress. And what it has done is transformed the safety of factories in Bangladesh by 
putting in by inspecting them independently and finding all of the problems of electrical safety, fire safety, and structural safety, and fixing those. Now, this system has proved to be the most effective means of dealing with the situation there. We've brought, brought about real change. And the way we've done that is through something that had never been tried before and that many companies were hesitant about, and that is entering into an industry-wide agreement um, which is legally binding with trade unions. But I'm very happy to say that the commitment of the brands is to continue with this process. While the Accord is a landmark of progress in the industry, it has its limits. So much more needs to be done. Right now it's in one country, Bangladesh, and you have so many other apparel exporting countries, and it's been focusing on building safety. And the question of living wages, and as I keep saying, the right of freedom of association rights, the rights of workers to, to, to voice and empowerment um, are, are crucial. So we need to do more. We need to expand it. The right to freedom of association is a human right recognized internationally. Garment workers, as much as anybody else, should have the free right to join a trade union. Since this is not the case, we believe that brands and retailers have an obligation to do something about that. And it's not just us saying it. It is a requirement of the UN guiding principles, the OECD guidelines, the ILO conventions, that people do this, that companies do this. Unfortunately, many garment workers still don't have the right to join a trade union, and that makes it very difficult for them to protect their rights, their working conditions, and their wages. So, until the Accord expands to protect workers' rights to participate in trade unions around the world, what are independent organisations doing to help workers' voices be heard? Debbie Coulter again. What organisations like ETI are doing in the interim is um, not suggesting that there's any um, acceptable alternative to, um, you know, independent trade unions representing workers and bargaining on their behalf. But in the interim, um, looking at solutions, um, like, for example, in Bangladesh, um, where by law, um, every company with more than 50 workers, uh, which pretty much every company in the garment sector in Bangladesh, is by law required to have a participation committee. Um, so we're working with, um, uh, with through our brands with uh, suppliers to make sure that those committees are in place, um, that women are well represented on those committees, that they're democratically elected, and we train them on their own. We train women on their own. We train um, the supervisors and the managers, and then we bring them together and we. Um, train the the social dialogue committee um so in 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 that regard um and 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 that's something that others like the ILO are, are looking to um champion and progress as well so in that regard yes there are some environments where workers have a voice and how important is it for brands to form a relationship with the unions that represent their workers it's critical that the global brands and retailers that buy clothes from garment-producing countries have a direct relationship with the unions that represent those workers. If the brands and retailers can have direct working relationships with those unions, then they can learn better about what is going on in the factories and how they can improve conditions for the workers that make those clothes. 
with Industrial Global Union, we're able to do that because we can enter into direct relationships with these companies through global framework agreements that allow the workers themselves to monitor their own working conditions in the factories, to have the freedom to organize unions and to improve their pay and working conditions. So in this episode, we've heard just how important it is for workers to find their collective voice, to fight for better pay and safer working conditions. But we've heard first-hand experiences of just how difficult this can be. When there's no legal protection for unions, garment workers risk their lives and their livelihoods when they speak out. But there is hope. The activists and organisations we've heard from in this episode have shown that change is possible. And while we must fight for workers' union rights to be enshrined in law, organisations like Industrial and Ethical Trading Initiative are offering support to workers to make sure their concerns are heard. In the next episode, we're going to be speaking in-depth with Eric and Guy from Microfinance Opportunities. Learning more about the difficult conditions these women live and work in. Please subscribe to the Fashion Revolution podcast channel on Acast, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give this podcast a good rating and review it if you can, because it'll help others find us. Follow this podcast series on social media using hashtag Worker Diaries or find us at Fash underscore Rev on Twitter and Instagram or at facebook.com forward slash fashionrevolution.org. This podcast was produced by Claire Crofton and Boom Shakalaka Productions in collaboration with Fashion Revolution and Microfinance Opportunities with support from CNA Foundation. This podcast was recorded at The Pod at White City Place in London. Our original theme music was produced by Katie Morley. We would like to thank all our contributors, Calpona Actor, Mark Anna, Ursula de Castro, Debbie Coulter, Sarah Ditti, Jenny Holtcroft, Eric Noggle, Carrie Summers and Guy Stewart. Thanks also to Connor Gallagher, a researcher from Microfinance Opportunities, and Heather Knight, who designs everything for Fashion Revolution.